This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. Today I'd like to tell you about a man of humble origins, how he became a renowned scholar and poet, kept the imperial court in fear long after his death transformed himself into a wrathful spirit, a deity, and a bodhisattva all at once, had thousands shrines dedicated to him all over the country, and is respected even by high school students. He has it all. He is Sugawara no Michizane, and let me tell you about his life. In the Dear of Nara episode, I told you a short but complicated story about the origins of the Fujiwara clan, descendants of the Nakatomi clan, descendants of Ame no Koyane, one of the fortune tellers in the myth of the sun goddess Amaterasu. Well, the Fujiwara were not the only ones who claimed to be descended from gods. The imperial family had the sun goddess herself as their divine ancestor, and following the emperor, all aristocratic families worked hard to link themselves to some god or goddess. Fortunately, there were far more gods than aristocrats in Japan, so everyone had a choice. The Sugawara family goes back to Ameno Hohi no Mikoto, a child of Amaterasu and her younger brother Susanoo. And that's not as bad as you might think. Just on one occasion, according to Kojiki, Susanoo chewed and spat out the Magatama necklace Amaterasu was wearing, and five male deities were born, including Amenohohi. One of Amenohohi's descendants, the legendary wrestler Nomino Sukune, is regarded as a creator of sumo and Haniva dolls. We'll talk about sumo another time, but Haniva clay dolls gave his family a new surname, Haji, or Potter. This was all in mythical times, but the Hanji family did exist in ancient Japan. Then, in the Nara period, Buddhism gained popularity and branch of the Hanji family decided to switch from the dying art of Haniva making to Chinese studies. Very, very cool thing to do at the time. Apparently, you cannot be a serious scholar with a name like Potter, so they asked for imperial permission to switch to a very neutral Sugawara. The year was 781, and it was the end of the Nara period. The capital soon moved to Kyoto, then called Heian-kyo, a capital of peace and tranquility. Just about everything here, from urban planning to the structure of the imperial court, was modeled on China. China was a source of political, philosophical, cultural, medical and technical knowledge, and the Sugawara family, who had access to it, could apply it, slowly rose in status. In the early 9th century, Michizana's grandfather founded a private school of Confucian learning, and his father rose even higher, becoming head of Daigakudo, the Department of Great Studies, 
the highest educational institution in the capital and the country. It was not a university as we know it, not even close. Daigakuryo was a place where members of nobility were trained to become officials at the court, and to be successful at the court one needed to know Chinese language, history, philosophy and literature. Students preparing for exams were expected to memorize full texts and all commentaries on them, and to be able to recite the Chinese reading for each character, its equivalent in Japanese, and the interpretation. In a world where a quotation from a Chinese classic could beat any argument, Daigakuryo graduates were very influential and powerful people. Well, if their lineage allowed it, of course. The Sugawara family was not of high rank, and therefore not very powerful. But their fame as Chinese scholars was great. Then, in 845, Michizana was born. And while the historical records don't tell us anything about his childhood, legend has it that Michizane was a child prodigy who recited his first Chinese poem at the age of 11. When he was a little older, he entered the Daigakuryo. At that time, the study of Chinese literature was very popular, but Michizane beat his rivals and passed exam after exam to become a student and later to advance to the next level. At the age of 18, which was considered very early, he became a monjosho, a scholar of letters. Two of the best scholars were later selected to become distinguished scholars of letters, monjotokugosho, and finally they had a chance to pass the ultimate exam, which was administered by imperial command and was so difficult that only 65 men passed it in the more than 200 years, from 704 to 931. Michizane passed it at the age of 26 on his first attempt. According to later anecdotes, any means were considered justified to pass this examination. Michizane's examiner is said to have obtained the discarded draft of a question by seducing one of the maids of his examiner. Michizane refused to stay in his examination room, wandering around and, at one point, sending a friend to a certain mysterious, reckless gentleman of Saga, for advice when he was at loss for an answer. But, anecdotes aside, Michizane brilliantly composed his two essays in Chinese and officially became one of the most knowledgeable people in the country. At the same time, his career was going really well. He entered the service at the age of 14 and, after graduating, became a teacher at the Daigakuryo and Sugawara private school. He composed formal prose, funeral inscriptions, prefaces, examination questions and answers, edicts on behalf of the emperor, he entertained foreign embassies and, of course, wrote poetry. Then, in 886, he was sent to Shikoku to serve as a governor of Sanuki province, now Kagawa prefecture, for four years. While nothing interesting happens to Michizane for a while, let's take a quick look at the imperial court, where the Fujiwara clan has been running the show for a couple of centuries now. Being so close to the emperor, the Fujiwaras have seriously taken on the self-imposed responsibility of providing imperial brides. By the time of Michizane, the Fujiwara clan wanted more than just blood relations with the imperial family. They wanted to rule. 
And in 858, Fujiwara Yoshifusa managed to become a regent to his eight-year-old grandson, Emperor Seiva. Needless to say, he loved it. By the end of the 10th century, the Fujiwara will have secured their position at court by producing imperial brides, heirs and regents, and ensuring that young emperors retire soon after procreating. Because adult emperors inconveniently want to rule themselves like Emperor Uda, who ascended the throne in 887. Uda was the worst thing that could have happened to Fujiwara. His mother was not from their family, and the new emperor was young, healthy and very active, with a big dream of ruling himself like his ancestors had done in the good old days. But then the Fujiwara were the worst thing that could have happened to Uda, because they were everywhere, and it was very hard to replace them. At the very least, we should end the monopoly, thought Uda ascending the throne. But no matter how much he wanted to see his friend and advisor Tachibana Hiromi at the head of the government, he had to give the highest position of Kampaku to Fujiwara Mototsune. As was customary, Mototsune politely declined the first offer, but instead of receiving an imperial order to reconsider and accept the post, he received a letter from Uda saying, Well, okay, then I'll grant you the title of Ako. What? thought Mototsune and started googling what Ako meant. Oh wait, he didn't. Instead, he had to ask everyone around what they thought Ako meant. After all, the title came to Japan from ancient China, and uh, even if it did once represent a specific government position, by the 9th century nobody had used it long enough for it to have lost all particular meaning. Mototsune felt insulted and decided that since his title carried no real responsibility, he didn't have to do anything. Thus began the Akko incident. Time passed. Uda tried to prove that the title was right, Mototsune that Kampaku meant Kampaku, and Ako meant nothing. Most scholars sided with the letter. Shizane wrote from Shikoku that although he didn't think the term was the most appropriate, he saw no harm in using it. Although the letter arrived in the capital after the conflict had been resolved, it miraculously had a calming effect on both Uda and Mototsune. But nothing could save poor Hiromi. He was accused of having proposed the wrong term to the emperor, and as soon as Mototsune regained his position as Kampaku, he did everything he could to ostracize Hiromi and slowly drive him to resign. One year later, Tachibana Hiromi died. Though Mototsune didn't live much longer, he enjoyed the position of Kampaku for just over two years and died at the beginning of 891. Without Motsune around, Uda could finally rule. So he didn't choose anyone for the now vacant position of Kampaku and quickly announced his son Atsukimi, born to a non-Fujiwara wife, the next emperor. Finally, he surrounded himself with trusted non-Fujiwara officials. Uda hadn't forgotten Michizana's loyalty during the Akwa incident, so unexpectedly for someone of his rank, Michizane became a member of a higher court bureaucracy. Two years later, he was promoted even higher, 
and became Atsukimi's teacher. As if that weren't enough, Uda took one of Michizane's daughters as his concubine. Then, in 894, Michizane was chosen to lead a Japanese embassy to China. But the embassy never left Japan, because Michizane was against it. What? Isn't it a dream to visit a country you've studied all your life? Apparently not. While during Nara and the early Heian period, Japan soaked up Chinese knowledge like a sponge, by the end of the 9th century, its culture was sophisticated enough to develop on its own. During the Heian period, embassies became less regular with the last one sent before Michizane, who was 49 years old at the time, was born. And while Chinese studies were still an important part of aristocratic education, not all things Chinese proved to work on Japanese soil. Generally speaking, Japan simply wasn't that interested in China anymore. The aristocrats found their own country and its surroundings far more interesting. So, when Michizane wrote a very convincing proposal to cancel the embassy, explaining that China was not particularly safe to visit at the moment because of the rebellion and the decline of the dynasty and the pirates at the sea, it was well received and soon agreed upon. The cancellation of this embassy had a great and long-lasting effect on Japanese culture. As a result of Michizane's refusal to go, Japanese relations with China were left entirely to private hands of monks and merchants, and a distinct Japanese culture was finally able to flourish. With the cancellation of the embassy, life at the court was returned to normal. And it's time to meet another person important for us today. Fujiwara no Tokihira, the son of the late Mototsune, was in his early 20s when his father died. So he still had a few ranks to climb to the top of the government ladder. But being Fujiwara, he had a much more privileged starting position than anyone else, not to mention Michizane. However, with Uda's support, Michizane received an unexpected boost to his career, and in just two years, he found himself suddenly elevated from the status of respected but low-ranking scholar to the rank of senior minister. By 896, when one of his daughters entered Uda's harem, Chizane had risen to the position of middle counselor and soon found himself just one step behind Fujiwara no Tokihira, who was, by the way, half Michizane's age. But nothing had happened yet. Michizane wrote historical chronicles and taught. His disciples filled more than half of the key position in the court. But just when everything in Michizane's life seemed perfect, Emperor Uda decided to retire. He abdicated in favor of his son, the 12-year-old Atsukimi, now called Emperor Daigo. Michizane was still Uda's favorite, and he told his son to listen to him for he would help him as he had helped Uda. In 899, on the same day that Tokihira became minister of the left, Michizane became minister of the right. Together, they were to share power in a similar way to the Kampaku, and, as the two most powerful people in the land, helped the teenage emperor fulfill his duties. It was an extraordinary honor for the member of the Sugawara family, but, as it turned out, the greatest happiness of Michizane's life soon became 
greatest misfortune. His high position and the constant flow of his disciples into the government made Fujiwara feel very insecure. But it's time to Kihira, who had inherited his father's and grandfather's gift for leadership and decisive action, knew that Michizane had to go, if the Fujiwara clan was to regain its position at court. But since violence was not the preferred way to resolve political disputes in the capital of peace and tranquility, Tokihira had to wait for a chance to do so peacefully. He finally got one in 901. According to a later source from the 12th century, ex-Emperor Uda and Emperor Daigo offered Michizane to end their dual leadership with Tokihira and run the government alone. Michizane refused to even consider such a proposal, but I guess Tokihira was not pleased to know that he was close to losing his power. Whether this episode really happened or not, in 901, Tokihira convinced the 16-year-old emperor that Michizane and Uda were planning to force Daigo to abdicate and make Uda's son by Michizane's daughter the next emperor instead. Without further investigation, an imperial decree was issued to remove Michizane from his post and exile him to Kyushu. This is the official part of the story, but here is a twist. In a court full of loyal Michizane's disciples, Juara could use some much-needed allies. Who were they? The dissatisfied scholars fed up with Michizane's monopoly on education. Not only was Michizane's son the head of Daigakuryo, but all the other desirable positions there, and half or more of all bureaucratic posts, were held by Sugawara disciples. One man, who was particularly unhappy about this, was Miyoshi Kiyoyuki. Michizane deliberately failed him in the exam because he didn't like him. So, yeah, if you thought Michizane was a nice, quiet philosopher with a long white beard, I'm sorry to disappoint you. The records say that he was rather arrogant, easily losing his temper, and was known to look down on other scholars, who he thought were too stupid. But since this is the story of Michizane and he is about to become a god, he has to be a good guy. And poor Kiyoyuki was destined to be the bad guy. Kiyoyuki didn't come from a family of scholars. During his studies at Daigakuryo, he was not a student of Michizane, but of his rival, Kosano Fumio, and only managed to get a high academic position when his teacher became the head of Daigaku. He didn't comfort Emperor Uda during the Ako incident, so he didn't get the career boost as Michizane. Instead, he was sent away from the capital to take up an unwanted provincial governorship. When he returned to Kyoto a few years later, he discovered that there were no good positions for him. It was only after Uda's abdication and a small government reshuffle that he finally managed to become a professor of literature. But while Kiyoyuki seems like a good guy, who ended up on the wrong side of the story, I didn't put him in it, just to make you feel sorry for him. Like many other Heian literati, Kiyoyuki was very interested in the Taoist art of life extension and the occult. We call it the occult, but to Heian men it was just another aspect of reality. Kiyoyuki was particularly fond of the Chinese calendar and studied it with great devotion. 
According to his predictions, the year 901, the 58th of the current cycle of 60, and an important year in larger cycles, would be unlucky and could bring instability to the government unless a new era name was adopted. The court was persuaded to change the era name in 901. Only Kiyuki's calculations were wrong. Was he just not good at arithmetic, or did he do it to help Tokihira get rid of Michizane? Is an open question. But he also sent a letter to Michizane, telling him that the stars won't be good for him the next year, so he'd better resign from all government positions. Was this a courtesy or a threat? Hmm. And it seemed that this time the stars were really against Michizane. Since there was a solar eclipse at the end of year 900, when Tokihira was trying to persuade the emperor to banish Michizane from the court, he compared the eclipse to Michizane's daughter, shadowing the empress like the moon. Now, that was a powerful argument. Suddenly, Michizane, who had just received his annual raise, was sent to Kuchu. His sons and closest disciples lost their positions and were sent to other remote areas of the country. When Uda heard what had just happened, he rushed to the palace but was refused entry at the gates. He waited for hours but had to return empty-handed. For Michizane, this meant that the last hope has been lost. And yet, this story is far from over. Next time, we'll see how Michizane struggled in exile, how he terrorized the imperial court for being unjust to him, and how he began a long journey to become a Shinto deity and a Bodhisattva. Talk to you next time. Bye!